This is Jew 2, Tales of the Mixed Multitude. I'm Rabbi Emily Cohen. This episode is produced in collaboration with the Jewish Home Project at B'nai Jeshrin on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and with Labshul, a pop-up community in New York that I'm lucky enough to be resident rabbi for. We recorded the interviews for this episode at the Rabbi Rachel Cowan Chapel at B'nai Jeshrin. And it was great to share space with audience members from both the BJ and Labshul communities. Our topic, race. What's it like to be a Jew of color in 2020? And how do Jews of color handle spaces where fairly or not, spoiler alert, not, they are viewed as other? My very first day in yeshiva, my very first class in Osameach was a Chumash class. It was a class on the, on the Torah, on you know five books of the Torah, and we were learning that week's Torah portion. And we were learning about the difference between a Hebrew slave and a Canaanite slave, the Evid Ivri and the Evid Kanaani. And the way that the rabbi explained it was, the Evid Ivri, he's a Hebrew servant. He's your brother. You have to give him off on Shabbos, and you have to feed him before you could eat yourself. The Evid Kanaani, the Canaanite slave, he's a big schwarzer. You can slap him around until you knock out his tooth. I'm not translating that word. And the rabbi laughs, throws his head back, and then looks at me and realized that he had just made a huge faux pas, turns Pantone colored shades of pink, but the damage had been done. And that was my introduction to yeshiva life. Um, Yitz Jordan, um, originally from Baltimore. My stage name is Why Love. Also do entrepreneur, writer, do Jewish hip hop. My Jewish story starts way back in the day in 1985 on TV. I saw a commercial when I was seven years old, due to math as to how old I am, that mm-hmm. said, happy Passover from your friends at Channel 2, and I went drawing a six-pointed star on what I saw from the commercial on everything in my mom's house. And I told my mother I wanted to be Jewish. And she went to work the next day to a woman who she worked with, Mrs. Schwartz, and I can't imagine what their conversation entailed, but it was something like, you know, my son wants to be Jewish, what do I do? And so they invited us over for Passover Seder that year, and that became my first Seder. And I got my first yarmulke that was like electric blue that said Bar Mitzvah of Ira, whoever. <laughs> and uh, I thought that that was my magic hat. You could not take it off of me. And started giving my lunch money to a kid in my second grade class to teach me what he was learning in Hebrew school. <laughs> See, people, when they talk to people who convert to Judaism, there's always that question of, you know, what was it? That, what was this thing that sparked your interest? Or what was that inner question? I was seven years old. There was no inner question I was answering. It was an instinctive thing. I knew that there was a group of people called Jews, and I had to be one of them, period. I would give up Christmas when I was about nine or so. She gave up reading Christian scripture. So it was kind of like an ongoing thing throughout my childhood. Judaism was always something I was into. Fast forward till I was about 14, went into the Baltimore Central Library downtown, got a learn to read Hebrew book and just sat there like, ah, 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 bah, 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 <laughs> until I could read Hebrew. It was around this time that I discovered that I wasn't Jewish because I always thought that it's like, okay, you believe, you say you believe, say Shema, you're Jewish. And it was around that time that I found out that conversion was a thing. And that became a huge goal of mine. I asked the rabbi, the campus rabbi, Johns Hopkins, if I could convert, and he told me no, because you can't convert until you're 18. But he told me just to keep learning, and that's what I did. I was 21. 
I went to convert.org slash orthodox, found a rabbi, and started learning online. I noticed at the bottom of every website said copyright Brooklyn, New York, copyright Brooklyn, New York. So I was like, I got to go to Brooklyn, New York. My first place that I visited was 770 Eastern Parkway in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, the world headquarters of the Lubavitch movement. And I was like, this is it. <laughs> there's stores that sell kosher food only. There's places that close every holiday. There's people that speak Yiddish. That was it. I took my next three paychecks and threw my stuff in a duffel bag and moved to New York. Started the conversion process in 1999. I converted Hasidic. 13 months of conversion. During the conversion process, it was said like it was a fait accompli. Like, okay, so then after you convert, you're going to go to yeshiva in Israel. I, th I told the rabbi that I didn't want to go to Israel. He was like, you're going. Uh, he said, find a yeshiva. And I was like, well, he's like, you're going to go to Orsameach, which is a yeshiva in Jerusalem. It was basically all picked and done for me. And all I had to do was get a passport. So I would go to Israel in uh, 2000, spent a year there, and for me, like I said, I converted Hasidics, and I'm half Ethiopian myself. So here I was seeing Ethiopian Jews, but I'm wearing a fur hat, and I'm wearing a silk coat, and I'm speaking Yiddish, and it was like, you know, this mutual, <laughs> this mutual, like, who are you? What are you? What's up with you? When, when Ethiopian uh, Jews would come, you know, come by the yeshiva. Like, even in Israel, there's Ashkenazi over Safari, uh, over Mizrahi, even lower than that. For instance, is it permissible or forbidden to ride a bike on Shabbat? According to Safari authorities, it may be. According to Ashkenazi authorities, definitely not. If you ride a bike on Shabbat, you're probably looked at as secular in Israel. You might be totally acting according to your rabbi, eating chicken and dairy together like Ethiopian Jews do. It's a tradition. They have kesin who can, you know, rabbis in Ethiopia who can tell you hundreds of years of tradition, but the Ashkenazim didn't say that that was okay. So often we talk about Ashkenazi people doing the accepting, and it's everyone else looking to be accepted. And, you know, the question is, you know, why do we do that? Like, why do we put, I mean, just bluntly, why do we put whiteness on a pedestal? Like, why are we looking for acceptance from usually Ashkenazi Jews? Let's pause for a moment of vocab explanation here. So Ashkenazi Jews are Jews from Eastern European descent. So Jews from Germany, Poland, all kinds of places like that. Sephardic Jews are folks from the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal, the folks mostly impacted by the Inquisition in 1492. Mizrahi Jews are from the Middle East and North Africa. And of course, there are Jewish groups native to all sorts of places around the world. When I was living in Jerusalem, I actually had a roommate who was Indian and of Jewish descent. It's important to note here from the outset that you can't tell what type of Jew somebody is by looking at them. There are Jews with Ashkenazi heritage who are people of color, and there are Jews who appear to be white or even identify as white who might be Sephardi or Mizrahi. Being misidentified is something that Kim Cohen has a lot of experience with. I'm Kim Cohen. I grew up in California. My dad is Jewish and my mom is from the Philippines. I didn't grow up in a Jewish community. I grew up very close to my mom's side of the family in Southern California. 
and the attempts that I made to understand my Jewish identity were met with a lot of confusion and even more than that, discomfort and maybe some exclusion. I wrote my thesis in grad school about mixed race Americans from the American racial lens. In particular with the Jewish community, what I found was a race scholar called Richard Alba, who talks about this concept of bright versus blurred lines. And what he found is that there are some cultures where the lines, the definition of what the culture is, is bright boundary, meaning the entry into it is difficult. It's a, it's a defined culture, whereas a blurred line is a culture where there isn't such a, a defined set of criteria. So you can, I mean, you could take the example of like white in America meant something different at the turn of the century than it did after and how Jews and Italians are now considered white. And that wasn't the case at the beginning. And so that could be considered a blurred line. And I found that in this framework, the Jewish culture is a bright line. There are very clear definitions of who's in and who's out based on who your parents are, in cases what your skin color is, religious practice. You know, my own family doesn't accept me. My dad's brother who lives in Israel is like on the very orthodox side. And growing up, I just remember hearing stories about him telling my dad that, you know, that his kids were going to go to heaven because they were full Jews. And so... There's a combination of tribalism, needing to feel like we define who we are, um, maybe because in the Jewish culture in particular, there's been so much persecution that the line has become so bright. In the U.S. context in particular, it, it's a function of the migration of Jews who came here. We didn't have the same Ethiopian Jews in the U.S. context in the same numbers that there are in Israel. There isn't there isn't variety. And so when you think of a minority in a majority setting, often cases groups will practice even stronger actually to keep that to keep the culture tight and to keep the identity there much of kim's academic interest in race came from her experience of growing up multiracial and particularly in her case being perceived as a race that she is not you know that question becomes is identity exogenous is it what people think i am or is it endogenous do so i get to determine my identity the way that we identify each other in society is based on the color of our skin. That's the way the U.S. has decided to organize the society. And so for people who are mixed, who might have ambiguous racial features, it kicks off a discomfort on the other end of somebody who does not recognize your features, your skin color matched with your eye shape or what have you. Or you might come out of the oven looking monoracial for a race that's completely not your own. Growing up in California, everyone thought I was Mexican. Mexicans would speak Spanish to me and get mad at me that I didn't speak Spanish back to them. Kim grew up in a secular home and didn't engage much with her Ashkenazi identity, but she did begin to explore a little bit in conversations with her grandmother. My grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and I realized at like a really young age that was a big deal. I remember thinking like, wow, I can't believe she survived that. What does that make me? And around like age seven or eight, I asked her, what does it mean to be Jewish? Because I didn't have any context. There's, I didn't have a Jewish education. I grew up with a lot of Asian kids and they were all going to church or a multitude of completely different religions. And so they'd say, so do you go to church? And I'd say, no. Okay, well, do you go to synagogue? No. Do you? 
And I didn't know how to answer any of those questions. And it was so uncomfortable. So I think I pushed away my Jewish identity because I was just met with a lot of discomfort. I didn't understand if it was a religion or an ethnicity or a race. I just, just pushed it away. And, and because of the way that I performed my racial identity in America, no one really asked. And then I went to college. I went to go pick up my ID at the library and the girl sitting behind the desk said, what's your name? And I give her my name and she pulls out my ID and she goes, oh, you're Jewish. And I said, can you tell? And she said, no, your name is Cohen. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, you're like the Smith of Jews. And I was like, no way. She was like, yeah, how do you not know that? And I was like, I don't know. And I tried to join the Hillel on campus in San Diego. And I was just met with all the questions again. Is your mom Jewish? Did you have a bat mitzvah? Sort of these, what I call barriers to entry. Like it was just like there was this gate and I didn't meet any of their requirements. While Kim was born to one Jewish parent, but raised without a particular sense of Jewish identity, Wylove converted Hasidic, meaning that his conversion was among the most stringent in the world. And while he certainly had trouble being accepted in terms of culture, legally it was a different question. Conversion kind of makes these types of things easy because in a way, you have your conversion certificate, you put it on file with this and agency, that agency, and then, you know, you're accepted. Kochavit Yehudit, my little Jewish star, on my uh, passport. But when you're talking about people who were born Jewish and they're looking for a validation of their actual identity, it's like, why does that have to come from someone Ashkenazi? Just a, just a question. I think it's because that's the majority. And when you're a minority, you feel like you're, you're other. And so when you're an other, you just, you want to not be another. You want to be part of the group. For Yitz, part of being part of the group was figuring out how to negotiate his sexuality. Left the ultra-Orthodox world in 2009 just because of, oh, I felt like the closet was a dead end. In 2012 is when I came out of the closet professionally as what I love. And that hadn't been done before in the hip-hop world, really, at all. I got the PR to come out. We planned it to be an out magazine. And it got to the point that the reaction was so positive that I had to start tagging homophobes because I had all these lines that I had prepared in my head for like what I was going to say to all these homophobic people. And they just weren't there, and I had to start finding them. The acceptance that Yitz found when he came out in 2012 was in stark contrast to his experience of growing up in Baltimore. I grew up not feeling accepted by the black community for being gay. I associated all things black with homophobia. I walked 20 minutes to the nearest white neighborhood to hang out because Baltimore at the time was the second most voluntarily segregated city in the country next to Atlanta. I say for somebody who doesn't have a strong sense of black identity, move to a place where you really are the only black person. And I kind of had to rediscover like black history and things like that while living in Borough Park because it was like, you know, I'm being looked at differently because I'm black. Well, what does being black mean? And that was kind of how I had to, you know, approach that. In 1990, the statistic was that 2.2% of Jews in America were black. And that was the statistic. No one was asking about Latino Jews. No one was asking about Asian Jews. No one was asking about Native American Jews. Fast forward almost 30 years, and now 
20% of Jews are ethnically diverse, is the term that Bechol Hashon uses, or what is a Jew of color? So, if you ask the Jews of Color Torah Academy, they'll say everybody who would be considered non-white by the census. Mm, my only problem with that is that the census considers Arab Americans to be white. And that, I think, undercounts the number of Jews of color. Because when you take somebody from Yemen who is like the color of onyx, it just, it, it, yeah. But, you know, that's how they're counted on the census form. I've heard that Mizrahi Jews and Sephardi Jews should be counted as Jews of color. That's what Bechol Hashon and company say. If you do that, then the number of Jews of color is higher. So, mm, I kind of look at it as a hybrid of those two definitions. People who could be considered non-white and some Mizrahi Jews who probably should be considered non-white. Who you consider to be a Jew of color, will that will dictate what statistic you have. So if it is the case that Jews of color are continuing to become a larger and larger part of the American Jewish population, shouldn't it be easy for people who look like Kim and like Love to feel fully accepted in Jewish spaces? Unfortunately, we're just not there yet. For Kim, there was a question of whether or not to even try to deepen into her Jewish identity at all. The authenticity tests that she faced in college made her feel like perhaps it wasn't worth it to pursue connection with that part of her heritage. But I was still very conflicted because I realized that my grandmother's experience was something that was so important and that I wanted to find a connection. So when she passed away in 2011, and I was living in New York, I, I met a distant cousin at the funeral who said you should go on birthright. I signed up and I was right on the cusp of my 26th birthday. So I got in sort of immediately. And so I very hesitantly went to Israel. I read a book about people who are like me and don't have a connection, what to expect. I was like one of the only non-fully Ashkenazi Jewish people on that trip. There was one girl who was half Chinese and I just like flocked to her. That experience was so, 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 so transformative for me because in the beginning, they were asking a lot of questions, like in the group sessions, like, what does Shabbat mean to you? And I was like, what's Shabbat? And I was really upset that they weren't taking into consideration the full gamut of experiences in the room. And so I went and talked to the guide. His name is Helik. And in his thick Israeli accent, he said, Kim, this is by design. Just trust me. His point was to show that there is so, so much variety in, and that American Jews in particular have such a narrow view of what it is to be Jewish, whereas in Israel you can just be. I saw the gamut of color in Israel in a way that made me feel like people were stopping me on the street and asking if I was Israeli. And I was like, sweet. This is like the first time I've ever felt normal in a Jewish setting. And then at the end of the trip, Helik and I talked again and he, he said, I'm Jewish and I accept you. And I was like, that's the first time I've ever heard that in my whole life. I came back and I joined the Alumni Association for Birthright and I learned how to bake challah and I went to a Hebrew class. Then I went on J-Day and I met my husband and I started working for a, a Jewish refugee organization. And that journey started around like 2012 or 2013 and same time when we met. And 
he's Ashkenazi Jewish and his family have been very helpful in me understanding and feeling comfortable in a Jewish space. Kim's continued exploration of her Jewish roots led her on a journey to discover more of her grandmother's story. In 2018, started in 2017, where I decided to try to find the descendants of the woman who saved my family and hid them during the war. And it took me and my partner on this wild journey to Amsterdam, into the archives. I found lots of information about my family and it led me into the apartment where my grandmother hid and where she grew up. It was this very, this moment for me where I felt like my Jewish identity had, there was like a pillow that had been solidified that I'd been looking for for a long time. So it was a really important moment for me. It wasn't long after this trip to Amsterdam that the attack happened on the Jewish community in Pittsburgh. I was working at a Jewish agency that happens to be pretty middle to right leaning. And I was working on a project on anti-Semitism, actually. And it was right after the attack in Pittsburgh. And it was the first time that I felt like an attack on Jews, which has been rising all over the world and I've seen my whole life, really resonated with me. When I heard about anti-Semitic attacks, I'd be like, oh, that's happening to them. But I never really felt a connection. But this time, I, you know, I'm part of a Jewish family that I didn't have growing up. And I've been to synagogue and I know what it's like to be in that space. And I can imagine my grandmother in that space. It just hit me really hard and it hit us very hard. And the next day I went to work and they were organizing a vigil. They had invited a lot of interfaith partners to the agency and they asked all the staff to attend. And I, I was looking forward to it because I felt like, you know, I, this is the first time I feel like I, I want to mourn for my people with my people. And I showed up and the staff were sort of crowded around the back of the room. And I wasn't carrying a bag. I w- didn't have my outside coat. So I very clearly was not an outside visitor coming in. One of the staff members who I've met multiple times pointed to me during the program and said, do you want to come sit in the front thinking that I was one of the interfaith partners? who ran the gamut of religions and ethnicities and and races. And I was really upset. And I said, I work here. And we'd met multiple times, but thank you. And he turned beet red and turned around and he came up to me and, and apologized later. But that moment for me, I actually started to write, like I wanted to write an op-ed about it to the effect of like, I have worked so hard I had worked so hard and I'm still working hard to feel comfortable in a Jewish space and to understand where I fit and where my community is and to learn Hebrew words and to marry a Jewish man and to get my grandmother to finish this legacy that she had started. Yet that's still not enough. Like when I walk into the space, somebody points me out literally and says, you don't belong here. You're not one of us. And so in a moment where I wanted to mourn and I felt the most Jewish in my whole life, I was reminded once again that I was not it turned me away from Jewish spaces. It made me realize that in my professional world, I definitely don't want to work in a Jewish space and that I don't necessarily need to be in a Jewish setting to feel connected to my Jewish identity. For Yitz, having spaces where Jews of color could bring their full selves and not worry about authenticity tests or about feeling accepted was of utmost importance, and it led him to his current work. In 2009, there was a murder. Yosef Robinson was killed. He was working in the wine store, kosher wine store on Nostrand Avenue and Avenue J. And at his funeral, 
there were so many Jews of color. And we all had the same question. How come I never see you? Where are you? Where do you go? Which shul do you go to? How come I never see you? And we realized that there should be a place, a community center that all Jews of color can go to and that could feel welcome. Tried to start it then, got a space in Crown Heights, infighting, money got involved, and then the, it never came to fruition. Fast forward 10 years, when the anti-Semitic uh, attacks were happening, and people started saying things like, where is the black leadership speaking about anti-Semitism? Where is the black uh, community talking about this? As if there's this monolithic group of people that we can just call 1-800-LEADERSHIP and then get like, and get like, you know, the head of the black committee on the phone and give some explanation. And this assumption of this monolithic identity was just getting ridiculous to the point that Shays Rishon, Manish Tana, and I, we were saying, you know, shouldn't there be at least a newsletter? There's a serious lack of media representation when it comes to Jews of color. Open up the forward. Open up Jerusalem Post. Click on Arut Sheva. Any Jewish news site, what are you going to see? 90% Ashkenazi people. When are you going to hear about Jews of color? Tiffany Haddish, Drake, you're going to hear about it. Somebody was some victim of racism, and therefore, let's write about it. I'm so sick of being a victim of racism, so here's my think piece. You're going to hear things like that. Whereas we're multifaceted individuals that have histories, cultures, aspirations, dreams, fears, hopes, all types of things that are just not being reported in Jewish media. How did we react when, when, the, when the attacks went down in Newark? How do we feel about Hebrew Israelites? How do Latino Jews feel about ice crackdowns? Things like this. No one's asking these questions, and tribeherald.com is going to be you know, the news source to represent the Jewish community in all of its diversity. Um, the Tribe Herald Foundation, we want to set up community centers that are targeting Jews of color and that cater towards Jews of color, not that are exclusively for Jews of color, but a place where you can find kosher mofongo and, and some mm-hmm. kosher collard greens, where you can speak your language and know that that's a, an acceptable thing to do, where non-Jewish communities are reached out to in interfaith ways by people of color. What we're trying to do is increase self-acceptance and increase that feeling of self-esteem for Jews of color. Because you have so many people being told they're not Jewish, being told they're fake Jews, being told that their family's not real. One guy who runs the organization Jews in All Hues was referred to as not Jewish, and he's a direct descendant of the founder of the Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov. That feeling of worth has to come from somewhere. And we want to help people do that. We want to help people feel that intrinsically without having to look to other people for acceptance. That search for intrinsic acceptance is something that Kim has encountered in her work with mixed race Americans in particular. I, I started an affinity group after I wrote my thesis because I found out so many things about this experience that people don't really talk about. And I think that mixed race people themselves don't really understand about the context that we're in that answers why people always ask us, what are you? Or you can't be, or no way, your dad's not black. Let me see a picture. There's, we have this gigantic set of exactly the same experiences, no matter what racial background we're from. And within this group, I have a lot of different varieties of, of mixes. It's half black and half white. It's Native American and black, Asian and white. And what I've found is that the folks that are half Jewish are some of the most 
reflective and are the most troubled by their identities. And that goes back, I think, again, back to that bright line idea. Not to say that there's a hierarchy, but just in my experience, my friends who are mixed with Jewish have had the same experiences walking into a Jewish setting and feeling very uncomfortable. And then as a result, turning towards their other side and feeling much more connected to which other, whatever other culture they grew up with. So in, in, in essence, you're losing these Jews, many of color, because they don't feel accepted. I know a ton of people who are half Jewish who are not affiliated at all. I've seen some effort in my limited knowledge of what the Jewish community is doing on this space. I mean, the fact that I'm even asked to be here and that we're having this conversation makes me feel like we're moving in the right direction. The recent spate in, uh, you know, anti-Semitic attacks and stuff like that, too many of the perpetrators were people of color, and there started to be this dichotomy of either black or Jewish. Who are you loyal to? Which community do you feel part of? And for me, having converted and having fought homophobes and you know fought racists for 20 years for me it was nothing to come up and you know to tell people where to go but you know when you're hearing stories of people who can't be around their own families people who you know were born Jewish and are being called converts and things like that when people are saying that Jews of color don't exist all Jews are of color things like that it just really energized me to get more involved in the Jewish community. I want that Generation Z should be the last generation to think that there's a Jewish look. I want that Generation Z should be the last generation to, to hear the phrase, you don't look Jewish. I would love that Jewish rapper should stop being a, a genre I'd love to, real simple, I'd love to see a black person with a yarmulke on outside of a documentary. Mm. You know, I'd love to see secular movies with Yiddish subtitles with a diverse cast. These are all things that could exist. That idea of this monolithic Jewish community, I just hope that Generation Z is the last ones to even think about it like that. What I think is also interesting about this moment Honestly, thank you for this invitation because this is the yeah, first time you. that someone has like valued my perspective on the Jewish community in a Jewish setting and my own personal experience as well. Like no one's ever asked me about my own experience. That's why I wrote a whole freaking thesis about it because <laughs> no one wanted to talk to me about it. I would hope if and when we have kids, no matter how they end up coming out of the oven, that they will feel accepted in, the, in a Jewish context and in a broader American context as we become all much more mixed up, which is the trend. Mixed race Americans are the fastest growing minority. It's just not talked about in that way. I would hope that my children could learn from my experiences and that they never have to experience some of the really difficult moments that I did and that the Jewish community wakes up more to this. In the past few years, I've had a lot of conversations with well-meaning Jews who appear white and are read as white, 
but don't want to identify as white because of their Jewish ancestry and the ways in which anti-Semitism, a pernicious force within white supremacy and within our society today, impacts their daily lives. But I actually think, as a Jew with Ashkenazi ancestry, and as somebody who is read as white everywhere that I go, that white Jews have to start acknowledging that they are indeed white, that they benefit from white privilege, even if that's only been the case for a few generations, and that they move through the world differently than their siblings who are Jews of color. I think that by doing this, by acknowledging the privilege that we hold, and by advocating for the notion that Yitz spoke about, that there shouldn't be a particular Jewish look that is held up as normative, white Jews will be able to partner with Jews of color to create spaces that are closer to being anti-racist and that are closer to being fully accepting of all Jews and those who love them, regardless of what they look like and how they came to exist in Jewish space in the first place. Luckily for all of us, Yitz is working on a space just like that. Everyone's wondering how they could donate to Tribe Herald. It's Tribe Herald, T-R-I-B-E Herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, on Venmo or at tribeherald.org. Deep thanks to Kim Cohen and to Yitz Jordan, Why Love, for being our guests on this episode. And as always this season, to B'nai Jeshrin for being our host. Our next episode in our collaboration with B'nai Jeshrin will be recorded sometime on Zoom in the coming weeks, and we'll look forward to sending you information as we develop that episode. In the meantime, always glad to be in touch. You can reach out over email at jew2podcast at gmail.com, over our website, jew2podcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, if you like the episode and this podcast, please share it and please rate us on one of those services. Hope you're all staying safe and well in these deeply uncertain times. We'll see you soon. Till then, this is Jew 2, Tales of the Mixed Multitude. <laughs>